This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the pod bay doors, Cal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we talk all things movies from first-time directors, indie, art house, and much, much more. Go check us out at tameaperture.com for previous episodes and to make suggestions on future episodes. Today on the podcast, we talk the killing of a sacred deer from Yorgos Lanthimos. Stephen, a charismatic surgeon, is forced to make an unthinkable sacrifice after his life starts to fall apart when the behavior of a teenage boy he has taken under his wing turns sinister. The film stars Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman and Barry Keoghan. It was also written by Yorgos and it's the follow-up film to his 2015 movie, The Lobster, also starring Colin Farrell. I'm Gabe Vienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined tonight by none other than the co-host, my main man, Alan Martindale, veteran podcaster and editor. Alan, how you doing tonight in this COVID world? I'm doing good, man. I, uh, I didn't know anything about this movie, and, and then when I saw it was uh, made by or released by A24, I was on board immediately. That's I, I haven't seen all the films they've released, but everything I've seen, I love. I absolutely love. So I'm, I'm, I'm. I was stoked from the beginning as soon as I saw it. Um, so I'm, I'm good, man. I'm really excited to talk about this. I am dying to get your thoughts on what the hell is happening in this movie. Yeah, I. Also, it's funny because I thought the same thing. It was this was a movie where I was just sitting one night and and you're kind of flipping through the streaming services. And I'm on Netflix, right? And I just see Colin Farrell. And I like Colin Farrell. I immediately, th- I, I, I remember vaguely hearing something about this movie, but I had never seen it. But I like Colin Farrell, so I was like, let's give it a shot. So I turned it on. And ironically enough, I agree with you. Like, I felt the same way. As soon as I saw A24 had a hand in it, I thought, okay, most of their stuff's pretty spot on. Most of their stuff's pretty good. So I think we're in for something. And then it starts in about... 10, 15 minutes in, I'm thinking to myself, what, what is going on? I'm constantly asking myself questions about this kid and why he has such a relationship with this doctor. And it's perplexing. I was confused. Yeah. So I'm also excited to talk about it. I thought it was an interesting selection. I think it's a good one to get into. But I had a lot of confusion almost all the way through the entirety of the film and I'm constantly sitting there trying to figure out in my head what what we're dealing with and for me and and I hadn't read anything about it I hadn't seen any uh, trailers I just went straight into the viewing and so immediately I got a little bit of for me I got a little bit of Kubrick I got a little bit right. of Kubrick in, in primarily in how he's utilizing the music and the tonality of the music as it kind of it's that creepy, eerie, ambient kind of, you know, ethereal kind of music sounds. And so I kind of got that and, and also just the confusion of not quite sure what's going on. And so the psychology of it started making me ask myself questions. And I started to try to break it down and figure out what was going on. And so the setup to this, we'll jump into it, is basically you have uh, a surgeon, basically a heart surgeon, a cardiovascular surgeon, who has a family. He has a young boy and a a daughter. 
and uh, and a wife played by Nicole Kidman, and it seems like they're they're doing quite well for themselves, and and he's uh, quite successful as a, as this surgeon. Um, and then there's these random periodic meetings at the beginning with this this young man um, named Martin, and the, he's a he's a boy of like 15, 16 years old, and I'm, I, I, they just start randomly meeting. Also, the dialogue and the conversations between them were so, they were interesting. Like right. I was, the, the way that they spoke to each other, you knew that they had some kind of history, but you weren't sure what it was. Well, at first I, I, I was convinced that this kid was like his lover. I, I was convinced like it was his secret, you know, torrid affair that he was having. And it was super, you know, super on the DL. And um, the, I agree, the dialogue is strange because it, it was almost like, almost felt like a little bit of Guy Ritchie, maybe a little bit of Tarantino, but delivered in just deadpan, no emotion whatsoever. Yeah. It felt, the whole movie actually felt like, almost like a B movie. Like you see some of these, like in the room, some of the line de deliveries really felt like it was just delivered just horribly, but you could tell it was intentional. It, it, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he was thinking trying to, 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 to direct them that way. And even Colin Farrell, this is how good of an actor he is. I always love seeing Colin Farrell. Uh, anytime I see those eyebrows, I'm a happy man. Cause I know it's going to be, even if the movie sucks, he's going to be good in it. And I thought this movie was great, but even with the, the dead, you know, monotone, boring acting, he still put on a hell of a performance. I don't know how he did it. I, I tried. I was actually thinking about that. I was trying to think how he did that and why I enjoyed this movie, especially in the first act, because nothing really happens in the first act. It's really kind of slow. And normally I'd be checking my watch, but I was intrigued the whole time. I couldn't take my eyes off it. You're just kind of... Uh, yeah, because I just that? kept asking myself the question, like, what are we doing? And right. I think sometimes there's those films where they that first act is, is like you said, it's boring and you're kind of checking your watch. There's not a lot of action going. And in this film, there's not either. But for some reason, there's an intrigue. And maybe that's the performance of Farrell as he kind of helps guide it through. But it's the constant question of, like, where is this going? Where and there's a he's built somehow, and I'm trying to pinpoint how he does it, but somehow he builds a constant curiosity throughout, right? You know, like right. what are what's the relationship between this kid and this surgeon, and then how does his family play into it? Now, those things are revealed later on, and we kind of get an idea, but that, like you said, that first act, I'm sitting there wondering constantly what's going on. I also Kind of, I mean, I thought that uh, Barry Keoghan, this kid that the that 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 plays the the young man that that Colin Farrell uh, has a relate. Well, you think he has a relationship with in in a sexual way. I thought the right. same thing. The undertone to me when they start talking to each other in the beginning of the film is that he, Colin Farrell is is stepping out on his wife. He's having an affair with this young boy. And that you're right. That's for me. That was also planted in my mind, and and I think he's doing that intentionally as a misdirection, 
because it's not really what's happening. Um, right. But initially you're thinking that. So maybe some of those questions are posed. But this Barry Keoghan, what I was getting at is his performance too is so, so curious. Like right. I don't know how else to describe it. He's it, it, it sparks a lot of curiosity, a lot of, uh, he, he, very awkward and very strange, but intriguing to watch. Like For can sure. still hold the camera and still hold the scene. And when you're going up against, you're battling in a scene against an actor like Colin Farrell, that could be hard to do. But I think this kid does a good job comparatively, you know, th- throwing blows with him essentially in scenes. And, and you're just, the curiosity is there. So definitely. And it's, it's a little interesting to talk about the acting in this because it, it's not really, you don't look at it and, and say in a traditional way, that's great acting. Like it just doesn't, the way it's directed is so deadpan, but still, yeah, you, this you is know not you're watching a very good performance. Absolutely. This is not, uh, this is not Marlon Brando in a streetcar named desire. Right. Exactly. Now that's how I'm going to clear the table. Don't you ever talk that way to me. Pig, Polak, disgusting, vulgar, greasy. Those kind of words have been on your tongue and your sister's tongue is too much around here. What do you think you are, a pair of queens? I just remember what Huey Long said, that every man's a king and I'm the king around here. And don't you forget it. My place is all cleared up now. You want me to clear yours? Like, this is not Al Pacino in The Godfather. You think I'm skimming off the top, Mike? You're unlucky. (laughs) You goddamn guineas really make me laugh. I do you a favor and take Freddy in when you're having a bad time, and then you try to push me out. Wait a minute. You took Freddie in because the Corleone family bankrolled your casino because the Molinari family on the coast guaranteed his safety. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business, Mike. First of all, you're all done. The Coyote family don't even have that kind of muscle anymore. The Godfather is sick, right? You're getting chased out of New York by Bazzini and the other families. What do you think is going on here? You think you can come to my hotel and take over? I talked to Bazzini. I can make a deal with him and still keep my hotel. Is that why you slap my brother around in public? Oh, no, that, that, that was nothing, Mike. Now, now, uh, uh, Mo didn't mean nothing by that. Sure, he flies off the handle once in a while, but, but Mo and me were good friends, right, Mo, huh? I got a business to run. I got to kick asses sometimes to make it run right. We had a little argument, Freddie and I, so I had to straighten him out. You straightened my brother out? He was banging cocktail waitresses two at a time. Players couldn't get a drink at the table. What's wrong with you? I leave for New York tomorrow. Think about a price. You're right. This is a different thing, but, but still good in, a, in mm-hmm. a different, awkward way. Now, um, something interesting about this director, too. I think Yorgos, I don't know if you ever saw this film. I watched it once again because I like Colin Farrell, and I saw it when it came out. But did you see The Lobster? I did not see it. In fact, after I was done with this movie, I started watching a lobster, but I, I got about a quarter of the way through and then I, I had some other stuff come up, but I am dying to get back to, to it because it's intriguing. It's, it's kind of the same thing. And 
even the dialogue in that it's the dialogue doesn't feel more awkward or doesn't feel as awkward, but the performances still kind of have that, that kind of just deadpan, at least as far as I got that deadpan kind of boring delivery, boring. I say boring. It's not boring. That's the thing. I don't know how else to describe it. Right. I mean, it's, it, there's, it, it's almost like there's a monotone nature to how, how things play out, but mm -hmm. But it's not, but it doesn't lose rhythm. So I know that sounds contradictory, right. but there's still something there that, that, like we said, there's a curiosity and something that kind of captures your imagination. I think it has to do with me a lot of the questioning about the relationships. And I think what he's good at doing, and, if, and, 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 and I'll compare Killing of a Sacred Deer against The Lobster because they're his two films back to back, is that he creates these worlds that are real but obscure. Like they feel like real worlds, but they're very different from the world that we might know, right? Um, right. Because the characters are so, like in the in the lobster, the the world is what sets it apart. And I think in the killing of a sacred deer, it's the relationships and the questioning of what's going to happen. But I think he does a really good job directorially at, at like at putting his spin on it. A, 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 a look at how he sees the world and how he creates stories and characters. And it's very different from the traditional, we mentioned the acting, but I just think in storytelling in general as films, like he's got a little unique value that he puts on it. You know, a lot of times we always talk about, you know, people always talk about putting your, your kind of fingerprint on the story or like borrowing from other people and then putting your 30 or 40, 50% of your uniqueness onto, your, onto the story. I think he does that really well, um, and, and it's his. I, don't, I can't think of something, at least right now that I've seen, that has kind of that unique spin like these two films in, in, a, in, a, in a way that he's been able to do it. So I, I kind of applaud him in being able to create these kind of unique worlds with these really intriguing characters. Even in a mundane it's, approach of the dialogue, like you mentioned, yeah, it's it's a little it's it's a risk. It, it's a total risk, I think, because it almost dares you to like the movie, even though the acting is not what you, typically you think of, of of typical acting. Like it really, it, it's it's interesting because, like you you mentioned the the score, and I, I did feel like it was the score to The Shining. Like it it felt a lot very Kubrick esque. And this, this, the, the story and the score and all these other elements are almost guiding us along. And the acting is almost a curiosity because it's very strange um, that I'm enjoying this as much with these performances. And I, I can't really explain it other than that. If people haven't seen it, I think they, they need to stop right now, pause this podcast and go watch it to know what we're talking about because it feels, it, it's just such a strange world we live in. And it's, it is a huge risk because if you tell if you have Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman in your movie and you tell them to emote less and you direct them to tone it down, uh, you better be damn confident in your story and your ability to tell the story because you have these A-list actors, these guys who are professionals, and they could, you know, it'd be very easy just to hang your hat on them. And let them do all the heavy lift, the heavy lifting. But Yorgos, he, he would. I just, I'm kind of blown away. I, I still don't quite understand why I like the movie so much. 
I think I think part of it too is is you know we were talking about this comparison to something like The Shining. I think we both kind of fell into the Kubrickian style, but I think a big part of that is how he uses the push in zoom. I mean, yeah. and the symmetry in the shots and a lot of the, um, the camera movements, mm-hmm. you know, where he's using uh, a lot of the steady cam down hallways and just constant moves for like 20 seconds. And then those kind of still shots with the, the, you see, it's not a push in with the dolly. It's actually just a zoom in to the character, right. which is very, very Kubrickian, right? Like we, we look at The Shining and all those are those zoom push-ins, you know, those right. telephoto zoom lens push-ins. So I think the, the, the way in which he constructs the world, the world technically kind of helps assist some of the, the flatter delivery of the characters. But you're right. I mean, being able to use such big names like Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman, and telling them to, but it's also the obscurities. Like, we'll give you an example of like a scene where uh, Colin Farrell comes home from work, and he's with his wife in bed, and she just lays down and basically says something about being like comatose. General anesthesia. General anesthesia, like imitating what it would be like to be knocked out, and then he basically you know, takes advantage of her. That's what gets him off. It's bizarre. Yeah. So like these, these eccentric behaviors in this flatline, what seems to be a flatline world kind of help, help punch it up in the, it's, it's, I keep using this word, but it's that curiosity. Like what is, right. What is this? Yeah. Well, and when he, when he, when he, when he tries to share the secrets with, uh, he, he has the secret game with his son. Uh, and this, the secret he shares is so over the top and wild. And he just, it's just kind of a throwaway thing. I was actually trying to explain this film to my girlfriend today. Uh, and that was a terrible mistake because this, this movie cannot be explained. <laughs> like She's like, so what's it about? And I tried to explain it. I'm like, I just, there's nothing I can do that can explain it to you. I, so I gave her the little uh, anecdote about his, his <laughs> the story of him going in and, and masturbating his father. Yeah. And how that's well, his that, big that'll, that's his that'll pique people's curiosity or, yeah. or make but them nervous the, about watching it. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that's the way he does it. It's just, I mean, why not just say I cheated on my medical school exam or something like that? You know, like something less dangerous, something less life altering and something, I, I don't know. It was just, it was bizarre. And he just, throws it out there and then it's gone like that alone would be the subject of an entire film like that whole that would be an inciting incident in some film and instead it's just a throwaway line it's a a throwaway it's just part of the scene yeah i mean it's the incentives to get he thinks his son's faking it so the Mm storyline here is basically that after martin who is the young man that uh what we end up finding out is that martin uh his father was killed uh, by Stephen uh, in an accident on the on the operating table. S- Stephen was essentially inebriated and had had some drinks, and it's thought that he essentially, because of his, what's the word I'm looking for, his um, 
unprofessionalism, uh, killed Martin's father. And he feels, I think he feels guilt for it, right? He feels guilt for, for sure. it. He, he tries to pretend like he doesn't take blame for it and pushes it off on the anesthesiologist. But, <laughs> but yeah, which is funny, a little scene. But essentially, uh, that's why he has created this relationship with Steven. So it has nothing to do with the two of them being uh, intimate in any way. It just has the fact that Steven, the surgeon, feels guilty for not being professional and like letting his father, letting Martin's father die on the operating table. Um, and I think that's the, f I don't know if it's the first scene, but the very first scene that it gets into, I'm, I'm imagining that's actually Martin's father. I don't know. Cause we don't see anything other than a real close up shot for like a minute or minute and a half of a heartbeat and this is a real, this is real. This is not a fabricated animated well, shot. I was wondering how they shot this because it's very clearly an open, like a, a human being's chest wide open and the heart is beating inside. I, did they get permission to film this? I, I don't know how they got this. Unless they're tricking me and they've magically created a practical effect that looks like a life beating heart when i watched I'll tell that, you what if i if got uncomfortable after effect, about then whoever did that should be go down in cinematic history as the greatest of all time because that is <laughs> that was unbelievable the rhythmic uh beat of the heart is amazing and the, the reality of it but it goes for like a minute or more yeah but the concept to that, me i think is that's martin's dad because once they leave steven and his the anesthesi anesthesiologist his friend are talking about a watch Mm -hmm. They're talking about a watch and, and it and, and this man has died on a table and they're just, you know, doing doing right. their normal uh, conversation about what their watch is and how deep it is and how many meters it goes. And and someone's just died. And that was the funniest part of the whole watch thing to me is the first question out of Colin Farrell's mouth when he sees the watch is, is what's the water resistance? Yeah. Like, I, I, have you ever. I didn't know watches had water resistance. Like, that's crazy. I mean, I knew they did, but it's never been, I've never been like, what's the water resistance? 100 meters, 200 meters. I've never paid right. attention, you know? Um, it almost felt a little uh, like American Psycho where they're comparing uh, business cards. Only this was more in admiration than, than frustration. Like it's, you know, his, his card is made out of pure ivory or whatever, whatever it was. And it has this typeface and it kind of felt like that. It's like the most mundane details that no one would notice for some reason is, is attractive. And that's the whole movie though. But like after it, just bizarre. losing somebody on the table, you know what I mean? Like you just lost somebody on the table and right. the next thing you're talking about is the d water resistance of a watch. Right. And uh, I imagine, and I w I've always thought about this too. I imagine that that's how you have to be a little bit callous as a doctor to a degree, I mean, you're dealing with this every day. I think if you let that sit for too long or for forever, you, you would never get through the downside of everything, right? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it feels like that's just kind of their day-to-day -day deal. They lost somebody and they got to yeah. move on because tomorrow there's going to be somebody new. Right, right. So after this, after this, uh, this opening scene is where we see is where we initially meet Martin and Steven and they're at a cafe. They're at a restaurant. And um, this is where 
just like we mentioned already, the questioning starts to come into play and who's this kid and why do they have a relationship? And we don't really get a lot of answers other than um, he buys him, he gives him a gift, a watch. He gives Martin, the young boy, a watch. And Martin gives him a hug and it's this awkward thing. And I started going here like maybe this is where it's not a sexual thing and there's a weird companionship there for something mm -hmm. else but i didn't know what um because he's still a little resistant what's his character all about why does he do you think he's really feels guilty for letting his father die or do you just think he's got himself in this position where he's not sure what to do with this kid who's kind of starting to infiltrate the family or him i th i think i think he feels guilty um I think it's mainly not necessarily for letting him die, but the fact that he was drinking before the surgery. Yeah. I, I think he feels guilty and that's why he's giving presents. And, and Martin even says later on, you know, you've given me so many gifts and I've given you nothing. So I think this is an ongoing thing. He's continually giving him gifts and trying to make up for it. And almost to an extent, trying to, to be a father figure to him at a distance. And the part that really solidified it to me that, okay, this is not like a lover situation was when he said, I want you to come meet my, my wife and kids. Yeah. That just, because this whole thing has been built up as a huge secret. Yeah. Like Martin comes to the hospital and he kind of, uh, he, he kind of admonishes him for coming to the hospital. And then now he's like, well, come meet my family. So it, it's like, it's like you said, the whole, the, it's just a mystery. There's a curiosity going like, what, what is, what in the hell is happening here? And it, it takes us through the entire first act, which thank God it's there because honestly, I, if it wasn't there, I think that first act would be very hard to get through. But I mean, there are instead it, it's, it's, it's intriguing and I can't take my eyes off it. And after he invites him to see the family, like also Martin starts like he, he's giving, he, he has got a cell phone number. He's calling him and saying, thank you. And like, and, and it starts to become, for me, it started to become uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? Like the right, first part, right. I was like, okay, I can see where his guilt comes in and he feels bad and he's left this kid without a father. But as it progresses and Martin keeps calling him and then keeps showing up and like or comes to the house and like comes to the hospital and like is just kind of randomly, not randomly even, deliberately following him to, it, it becomes a little bit, it, it starts to get crazy because as soon as he invites him to come to, his house and meet his mother, it, it gets very awkward. Well, I almost thought it was going to be like a fatal attraction esque type movie at this point, because Martin is showing up everywhere and, it, and you really do want him to smack the kid. He's so good at being kind of creepy. And he, he's also befriending uh, Colin Farrell's daughter and kind of leading her along. And it, it almost felt like he's trying to manipulate this family and manipulate uh, their emotions and what they're going through. And so I thought that's what it was going to be. Um, when he goes to Martin's house, that was a bizarre scenario. But again, it was like, it almost felt like, obviously Martin wants him to be his father. But it leads to a question uh, later on, because later on the the story changes a little bit. Martin's motivation has changed. And I don't know if he had that motivation from the get-go or if that was a plan B. If what he what he was doing to, to the kids and the wife later on, if that's a plan B because he couldn't get 
Colin Farrell to be his father, his father figure to take that place. So I don't know. I'm interested to get your thoughts on that one. Yeah, because he ends up inviting him to come to dinner, to which he accepts. I think in mm-hmm. some ways, reluctantly, once again, just kind of feeling guilt stricken. So he reluctantly right. goes to this dinner, and and Martin's there with his mom, played by Alicia Silverstone, making her making her little appearance in the film. Her triumphant return. Her triumphant return from Clueless. Um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or the Aerosmith videos of the 90s. Yep. <clears throat> but they have dinner, and this is awkward here. He says he'd like to watch a movie. Remember this? He goes, I'd like to watch a movie. Can you stick around and watch this movie with us? And he reluctantly does it. And then the awkward, like his mom's in on it too, to a degree. She's, mm-hmm. Because then they start watching this movie, and then Martin goes, hey, I'm going to go to bed. I'm tired. He's setting him up. He's setting up his mom. He's like the wingman to his mother. 100%. 100%. On a a married man. Well, and that's, I I think that's why, I mean, obviously he wanted to be a father figure, and and his plan failed, right? Right. And that's why he went on to the next the next phase of it right i i would agree yeah i think this at this point uh the mother uh does not succeed in luring steven or colin farrell's character into uh an affair which is i by think sucking on his finger by sucking on his finger <laughs> uh so he ends up leaving um rightfully so he ends up leaving but i think yeah now martin's plan has failed i think to get steven to be his father he, he really believes it, too. Like, he's not mm-hmm. just like, oh, maybe if they just saw each other, they'd hang out and start to grow and build a relationship. He really thinks, oh, I think my mom can do this and she can convince right. him to be, you know. But it doesn't work, so it's a, it's a failed plan. And it leads, I think it's a good point. I think in the story, it leads to the next kind of uh, drastic measures for this young, manipulative uh, conniving, smart, <laughs> and creepy kid. <laughs> because I think the whole point is he lost a part of his family, and so he needs that to be replaced. Yeah. And if that can't be replaced, then it's got to be evened out. I think that's kind of what he's going for. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's, that's exactly what he's going for. Uh, but it ends up failing, and then uh, the next kind of stepping stone into the story is essentially that uh, you start to see Stephen's family start to to be sick. They start to become sick. This is where I had questions. Is this, what was Martin doing? What was Martin doing to the family? Like, how was he, was he poisoning them? Or how did, I, I, this was never clear to me. Um, it was never clear. And I'm kind of glad it wasn't because, it almost feels like if there's an explanation, it would ruin the trick. Like it would ruin the the world that was built for this movie. Like it's almost uh, because once it becomes clear, uh, Colin Farrell doesn't accept it right away. He doesn't accept that Martin is making his family sick. And but as soon as he tells Nicole Kidman, she just accepts it. And the kids somehow they found out or they they were told or something, and they automatically accept it. So I almost I'm kind of glad that they didn't explain what he was doing because 
it made the world more re not realistic because it's not realistic, but it made it more believable, I guess. And it's almost like a magician. If if you if you tell how the trick is done, it's not quite as powerful. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Because uh, now, as I'm looking back on it, you don't really care uh, what what Martin might have done to to put his to put Stephen's family in this predicament or to make them sick. It's it, it you just know that it happened, mm -hmm. and uh, so I think you're right. There's this strange scene uh, as it kind of continues to build where he's obsessed with with hair, like armpit hair, and like uh, he shows up at the hospital. This scene to me was so weird. He shows up at the hospital and tells Stephen, "Hey, I don't feel good. It hurts. It hurts right here," and he's pointing to his heart. Because he knows that he's a, uh, a a heart surgeon, and but but I also think this is an on the nose symbolism, a, a metaphor to his character, which is like he feels the pain of his dad's loss, right? And only Stephen can fix it, or at least in his mind, only Stephen can fix it. If I had hair on my chest and belly, how would you attach these? We'd shave the hair off first. How long does it take for the hair to grow back? I don't know. About a month, I suppose. Your son told me that you've got lots of hair under your arms, three times more than I do, and that you've got a very hairy back and a very hairy belly. I probably do have a little more hair than you do because I'm older than you. But soon you'll have more hair too. It's all down to hormones. Can you show me, please? Can you take off your shirt and show me, please? Please. Okay, you do have more hair than I do, but not three times more. Me and my mom thought it'd be nice if you came by for dinner tonight. We could watch her as at a movie. Does eight sound good for you? That's very kind of you, but I just can't make it tonight. I need to be at home. Can't you get away for a couple of hours? I can't, no. Some other time. My mom's gonna be upset. Can I tell you a secret? Don't tell her I told you. I think she, I think she likes you. I mean, she's attracted to you, but she says that's not true, but it is, I'm sure. And to be honest, I think you're perfect for each other. You'd make a great couple. <laughs> this is just one, one more weird thing that happens in this movie. Martin tells him to take off his shirt, tells Colin Farrell to take off his shirt so we can see how much chest and armpit hair he has. And Colin Farrell just does it. I mean, this kid shows up at your work unannounced and is kind of just bossing him around. I, I mean, if, if someone showed up at your work, even if it's, if it's someone you felt immense guilt and you were trying to help them out and they told you to take off your shirt in your, in your place of business, I'd tell them to get the hell out of it. I mean, it's just bizarre how much he – not enables, but he kind of just goes along with whatever Martin wants at the beginning.
Yeah, he he succumbs. On to... the other hand, he's he's so hard on his son, and that's another uh, kind of uh, uh, a thing. He he. I don't want to say he's obsessed, but he he mentions how his son needs to get a haircut. And later on, I actually wrote this down because I thought it was so freaking funny when he thought when he thinks that his son is faking this. And I actually think at, at this point in the movie, he 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 he's desperately hoping that he's faking it. Yeah, um, I think he's starting to believe that he, he's not, but he desperately wants to know. So he says, "It." <laughs> it you got to get up or you got to stand up or whatever, or I will shave your head and make you eat your hair. I'm not joking. I will make you eat your hair. Like yeah. what the fuck kind of thing is that to say to your 10 year old kid? Well, there was a line earlier at the dinner table where they're talking about his hair and his son says, I promise I'll cut my hair. So you know right. that there's been a, no, no, you're right. That's a hell of a line to deliver to, to your, to your son. In a serious tone, I could see in a joking manner. If you sure. were, if you were going, I'm going to make you eat it. I'm going to make you eat it. <laughs> but like the way he delivers it is like it's legit. He's serious. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. Yeah. But um, to get to that, like his son, like after uh, 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 Martin shows up at the hospital and does all the tests, um, the next it's the next morning where his son, Stephen's son wakes up and, and like you were alluding to says that he can't walk and they think he's faking it. Um, and then they take him to the hospital and basically it, it appears as though he's okay. They can't, he's, he's kind of, he's still walking. His, his legs are still working. And then they do some tests and they basically let him go. And then he starts going down the stairs with his mom and then he falls. And this is like the end of it. He, he literally, his legs stop working. So his son cannot walk. And there's one thing I want to say about the performance. It, again, I don't want to keep beating a dead horse here, but if you woke up one morning and, and you couldn't get out of bed because your legs didn't work, would you just sit there and be like, my legs don't work. I can't move. I mean, just the, yeah. the, the sheer uh, yeah. cavalier attitude toward it is, is just bizarre. And it, this is the tone of the whole movie for me is just – this bizarre reaction to crazy things, crazy huge events that would yeah. just per like petrify anybody, and the kid's just like, "Yeah, I can't, I can't walk." I yeah, can't there's walk. a weird acceptance to things that you wouldn't accept with su right. without such reluctance, right. like these kind of things. You would even like the parents, like Nicole Kidman and, and Colin Farrell. They're their acceptance of like their kid just starting to go through these random par paralysis and like they're just they're like they're, it's like an expected thing right it's right. like why what and you're right but i think it's it's what creates the the weirdness of the world with these characters i don't think he's i don't think it's because it's a bad performance you know not at all. And I, I definitely think it's deliberate. Yes. And and so it kind of makes it even more, man, that curiosity word, Alan. I, I, I'm constantly curious about what is happening in this world. Their son can't walk. He gets tested. Nobody has any answers. They're all curious what's happening. Um, Martin shows up the next day at the hospital, and he's in the son's room while Nicole Kim and Colin Farrell come in. He's already there. 
He's visiting the son. And then he asked Colin Farrell to go see him at the cafeteria of the hospital. And they have this conversation. And this is where things start to get, it, he's, it's almost prophetic in the sense that the young Martin kid starts telling him about what's going to happen to his son. First, the paralysis. Uh, and then, you know, a few days will go by uh, and you have to, he's telling Colin Farrell's character, you have to decide who you're going to kill out of your children. And once the bleeding in the eyes starts to happen, it's over. This is where it starts to have, for me, it started to have a little bit more religious, mm-hmm. what's the word, subtext to it. I started. Well, I was actually. I was going to ask you about that because I'm not. I was never raised religious or anything, so a lot of this stuff kind of goes over my head. But you could see, like a lot of the shadows. Uh, it, it was almost like the camera was put at a place where the shadows, like there was a fan uh, on the ceiling, and it almost it for, the shadow formed a cross, and then there's some other religious symbolism, like some halos that I, could be interpreted as halos. So I was wondering. I was going to ask you. It, it, how thick in the symbolism, in the religious symbolism, uh, are we are we in the weeds here? As he started, for me, like I started thinking about various Bible stories. You have these Judeo-Christian things like Abraham with his son Isaac, and he has to kill, he has to make a choice because uh, God has randomly told him to kill his son. Um, I started thinking of things along that line. And then as we got further into, and it's not a direct correlation, but I started Mm -hmm. thinking about, okay, there's something going on here that's deeper literature, whether it's Christianity or the Bible or Buddhism. I don't know. It had something there. Well, I know it's, uh, there's, it's based on a, a Greek myth. And I, I did a little research after, and I did find those that Greek mythology uh, correlation. And I could see that. But for me, like the, the religious subtext was there and I just wasn't sure or wasn't clear how it, how it played out. But mm-hmm. the actual title of the film, like you mentioned, is based on various Greek plays and mythology. And I think, I also think it's pretty, it's, it's called Iphigenia at... Aulis, I want to say, is the, is the Greek tragedy. And uh, I don't know. I, from what I understand, it's very loosely based on it. So I don't think it follows it beat by beat by any stretch. But uh, I think that is the roots of it. Yeah. And particularly towards the end, and I don't want to jump too far, but I guess I, I, guess I will. I mean, when he's making the choice, he has to he, – he puts up – all three family members is sacrificial lambs. Like mm-hmm. he doesn't he ran in a random uh, approach to killing them. Like he has everybody. That was a shocker at the end too, by the way. I was, yeah. hit, hit, that's the other thing. His wife, Nicole Kidman, she, it's like they'd done it before. Had they right. done it before? Because they have this conversation and maybe we're getting too far at the end. I wanted to cover a couple things in the middle before we got to the end, but it felt like they had done this before. Do you know what I mean? Like this was something. It, it, it certainly felt, I mean, to me, it felt like it, it, it's, it was too casual. 
it was much too casual their conversations the, the most interesting part to me though as, as this progressed was how all three of them kind of i mean for lack of a better term they were almost auditioning uh to be the perfect child or the perfect wife and i mean even at one point nicole kibben says you know the the right choice to make here because colin farrell is forced to choose one of the three family members to die and, and this is Nicole this Kimmel by the way is him, the uh she says you know the best the, the best choice is to choose one of the children because we can always make another child yeah and, and i thought that was actually kind of comical and some of the things these guys were these these people were doing was kind of comical and how they're kind of jockeying to not be the one who gets killed yeah and before we get into the very end there one thing to to relay in the story is that his daughter is now suffering from the same symptoms that his son is she can't walk and and uh, she had actually built a bit of a relationship with Martin once he was introduced into the family and she kind of likes him and she's this young 13 year old girl um, and and the other thing that was so like these weird throwaways is like why everyone's telling her uh, telling uh why uh colin feller is telling all his friends about her menstrual cycle right like, what is going on like what like, are we why are we bringing that up with is it, it was just so strange it it's just, just so some strange. weird i just they're so casual and cavalier about these weird subjects and there's a there's a weird intimate kind of relationship between martin and his daughter and and steven's daughter and it feels like Martin is totally manipulating her, 100%. He, yeah. I don't think he really has any interest in her. I don't really know his motivation by going after her, honestly. She comes straight um, out and says it. She basically gets near naked. She's in a bra, and she basically tells him that she loves him. And then he goes, I have to go. Like, he, he just leaves. Right. So, uh, yeah, he's doing some form of manipulation on her. And, um, and, but then she get ends up in the hospital. And so both the daughter and the son are in the hospital They're The, the team of doctors are trying to figure out what's wrong with them. They're they're They can't walk. Their legs aren't functioning. Um, and so as it gets closer towards the end, um, his wife, she, what I didn't get is like in, it, after both kids are in the hospital, though, Nicole Kidman's is like this in she's this detective. She's trying to figure out what's going on. She's going to the anesthesiologist. She's going to other, um, Steven's other partners at the hospital, trying to figure out if he's got problems or if he's been drinking or if he's been incompetent in his job. And she's trying to figure it out. And my, my question is, cause we talked about the end is, why did she care so much in the middle? And then at the end, she just gave up and was like, hey, if we need more kids, we can have more kids. I thought the same thing. I didn't quite understand that. I didn't quite. There's a lot of there's a lot in here that I don't quite understand. But for some weird reason, I'm OK with not really understanding. Like There are plot holes and maybe they're not plot holes. Maybe they are explained. But to me, they're plot holes. But I, it doesn't bother me like a normal film would. I it's, just hated so how weird. I hated how uh, aggressive she was in the se- not in, not in the traditional sense of the word, but in the sense of her willingness and determination to find out what was going on. And then at the end, she just 
is like so submissive to him. So right. there's like this, this, this change in first I got to find out, I got to do all these things in so much that I, I'm going to go to Stephen's anesthesiologist friend, give him a handy. Right. <laughs> and then to try to get information about Stephen and what's been happening with Stephen at work. Is he drinking? Right. Is he doing these things? What's this Martin kid? Why do they have a relationship? And then at the end, she's all submissive. She's like, oh, yeah. Uh, I'll put a bag on my head with duct tape around. I'll dress in the black dress and you can attempt to shoot me. Like what? What? Cause she was so well, the only thing upset with them before is, uh, is Colin Farrell. Steven is that character's name, right? Colin, yeah. Colin Farrell's character. Yeah, yeah. So Steven kidnaps Martin and is basically going to beat the shit out of him until he takes off this curse or whatever, whatever's going on, whatever he's done to injure his kids. He's going to beat the shit out of him until he does it. Um, Nicole Kidman takes the exact opposite approach. She comes down, she cleans his wounds, she kisses his feet, well, and it was almost well. Like that's an another religious. That's another religious piece of imagery. Like, that one I got. The, the kissing I of the got feet. That one pretty right? good. Yeah, like that was pretty on the nose. But when, I think when she did that, and it still didn't work. Like her, 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 her deference didn't didn't affect this thing at all. I think maybe then she realized there's nothing I can do. That's the only thing I can think that would explain her turn. I yeah. don't know if it's accurate or not, but that's that's what I came up with. I mean, there was still uh, confusion, but but I think I I think I see where you're going with it. And then, and, and like I say, this is going to require a lot of I think a rewatch to really try to break mm -hmm. down even even more depth into what uh, he's trying to say. You know what Yorgos is trying to say. I mean, he's Greek. So it makes sense that he would borrow uh, elements of Greek mythology, no? Right. Or am I just stereotyping now? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, it makes sense. It's like, it's like people say, hey, Gabe, you're Dutch, so you should only tell stories from Dutch lore. Um, <laughs> the answer no to that Christianity is... Christianity symbols at all. I have no idea what Dutch stories are. Um <laughs> So, I don't either. <laughs> I didn't know they had any. I, uh, maybe they do. I'm sure everybody does. <laughs> I'm sure they do. So uh, what ends up happening is Stephen essentially kidnaps Martin, puts him in the basement, beats the shit out of him, starts yelling at him, getting upset with him, telling, trying to figure out what the current situation is and what Martin has done to cause his children to be paralyzed and possibly die in the near future um and like you said nicole kidman takes the opposite approach where she kind of soothes him and takes care of him and bandages him up um so i, I didn't get what's going on i was so like i was still intrigued but i was just something martin said though stood out and he talks about um something about metaphors he says something about metaphors um, I'm trying to remember the exact thing he says. It's he's sitting there and he's been beat the, beat to shit by by Stephen, and he says it's my example. He's all bloodied and cut up. He's a, it's a metaphor. Uh, I I don't know entirely what it meant, but it was it sparked my my thought process of what he's trying. Is he is this the deeper meaning of where he's trying to go with this story? 
Um, yeah, I know. I noticed that too. I actually, that was when I, I knew that I was going to have to watch this thing again because I feel like there's so much in there that I'm probably missing that I really want to understand. Like the whole spaghetti thing too, where he's eating spaghetti. So uh, Nicole Kidman's, this is early, a little bit earlier on in the film. She goes to Martin's house to talk to him and kind of reason with him, I think. And he tells the story about how after his dad died, everyone would tell him that he eats spaghetti just like his dad did. Oh, thank you very much. I'd like to talk to you. I'm not going to take up much of your time. Of course. Um, I've only got 10 minutes because i got to get to class. So what's up? My husband told me about you and your father. Oh, he did? Did he also tell you about my mom? No. Oh. Sorry. Maybe I'm not the one you should um, hear it from. But um, ever since your husband killed my father, he's been flirting with my mom. Constantly flirting. To be honest, She's got feelings for him, too. She thinks he's very nice hands. Truth is, he's, he's beautiful hands. All doctors have clean, nice, beautiful hands. So I told her, I said, I have no problem with it if you want to go ahead. I mean, he seems like a nice guy, very nice guy. And I don't want to get in the way of, um, her trying to get her life back on track. I'll be gone. I'll be gone in a few years. I'll get a job. If my husband made a mistake, if out of negligence or I don't know what, he caused this tragic thing to happen. I don't understand why I should have to pay the price, why my children should have to pay the price. You know, not long after my dad died, someone told me that I eat spaghetti the exact same way he did. They said, um, what an extraordinary impression this fact had made on them. Look at the boy, look how he eats spaghetti, exactly the same way his father did. He sticks his fork in, he twirls it around and around and around and around and around. Then he sticks it in his mouth. That time, I thought I was the only one who ate spaghetti that way. Maybe my dad. Later, of course, I found out that everyone eats spaghetti the exact same way. Exact same way. Exact same way. This made me very upset. Very upset. Maybe even um, more upset than when they told me he was dead. My dad. I don't know if what is happening is fair, but it's the uh, the only thing I can think of as close to justice. Time's getting on, and if I'm late for class, I'm done for. <laughs> Have a good day. So there's something there too. Like obviously, there's a metaphor or something going on there. 
that, that gives us some insight into the story. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. And even like the little weird anecdotes about, you know, telling all the friends that the, the daughter had a period or, or telling the story about masturbating the father, you know, all these weird, big statements that are said that are just treated so cavalier. Yeah. I, I think there's something more there too. That's yeah. why I got to go back and watch this thing again for maybe even a third time after I watch it again. Because I think that after uh, he beats the, the, the shit out of, out of Martin um, and the two kids are having a conversation and they're starting to, in their own way, understand what's happening, which is they know they're going to die. They, they basically understand or they, they have the possibility of dying. And they start feeling guilt of their own because then the young boy, Stephen's son, starts to want to cut his hair and like do mm -hmm. things that his dad says. And he's like, I want to be a cardiologist like you. And all these things that are like, wow, this is like there's some there's a little deeper meaning there between that relationship. Like the son's realizing what's happening and he wants to please his father. Well, and it's interesting because the daughter, actually, I don't think she at first thought she had to worry about that because she's got this thing going on with Martin. I think she was convinced that Martin would just save her. She even goes down. So while Martin's, by the way, tied up in the basement of Stephen's house after he's been killed, just beating the hell out of him, she goes down. She crawls down on her, on her arms, basically dragging herself and goes down and tells Martin to save her. Once again, this right. is a, this is a, re there's, there's a religious connotation there. There's a religious tie in has to do with the inability to walk and literally dragging yourself to a quote unquote savior. Right. And I don't like, I, I thought that was kind of funny actually seeing the kids drag themselves around yeah. like a zombie with no legs. Yeah. I, I don't know. That was kind of comical to me. I don't know the deeper meaning, but those, there are stories in the Bible of people who are, that are paralyzed that crawl and try to walk towards the savior for a touch that they can by his touch mm -hmm. he, they can then walk so it there's once again it's kind of inundated with these little religious symbols in some way or another um but then he get, essentially they get down there um to the end and it steven has to make a decision and the way that he makes the decision is that they do some kind of well first off before we before we get to that right before this um his son's eyes start to bleed so once again this prophetic statement from martin that happened earlier about the eyes bleeding means that death is coming mm -hmm. his son's eyes start bleeding and everyone says oh he's dying he's dying and then the ceremony at the end where nicole kidman says i'll put my black dress on and all these it, the next thing the next cut of the scene is the son the daughter and the wife tied up with duct tape he puts a bag over their head and he spins around with a shotgun and dizzies himself to try to hit one of them i thought that was kind of comical too i found a, i actually thought there was a lot of funny stuff in here and i don't know if that makes me a dark or a bad person because i don't think a lot of this was meant to be funny but when he's spinning around with the gun it, it was kind of funny man like he's stumbling around and i thought it, it, was, it was it was comical i thought it was funny when he missed twice yeah yeah <laughs> yeah because you're totally I mean, obviously he's gonna miss like yeah what are the odds of actually hitting one of them yeah i mean they're separated out in a they're sep 
they're separated out in a in a triangular fashion. Right. And he's in the middle with a beanie over his head <laughs> and a shotgun spinning in circles. You know what it reminds me of? It's like when remember when you were a kid and you did the baseball bat where you put the bat yeah. on your forehead and you run in circles and you try to right. get all dizzy. You know, that's exactly right. what it was. So I think there is, a, it, 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 I, don't, I think you're right. I don't think it's meant to be uh, comical, but there's some comedy uh, tonality in that scene. When he misses though, he misses, he shoots again, he misses. And then finally he hits the kid, the young boy. And then you just see that the young boy is now, you see the blood dripping from his chest. That wasn't funny. That was kind of it was kind no, of dark. That was de- definitely not funny. That was sad. <laughs> it was sad. Uh, but he's man, it's a trip because he's playing with your with your mind. What I find interesting is the last scene after the boy dies. So he's killed his son, right? And the last scene, they're at the same cafe that they were they that Stephen and Martin were at at the beginning, and it's. Uh, Stephen, his wife, and his daughter. The boy is obviously dead. And then Martin walks in and walks right by him. He goes and sits down at the the bar, the the counter, uh, across from him, and just stares at him. And they look at each other, and then the family gets up and leaves, and Martin sits at the bar alone. Yep. It was just, I was like, wait, what? What It It didn't feel like an ending at all. I, I wasn't sure this wraps up how I kind of feel about it mostly, which is like, I just wasn't sure I, I liked it. This is the thing. I liked the movie, but I wasn't sure how to interpret it. And right. after doing this research, like we had talked about the Greek mythology, I had, I had some ideas about Judeo Christian beliefs and in, in Christianity when it comes to the Bible and some tie-ins there. But it was so different from a lot of things I've seen. I don't know if I liked it just because it was different or if I liked it because of how it was executed. Do you know what I mean? Right. And so this definitely is going to require a bit of a rewatch. I think so too. Have you, since you watched it, have you been, have you been thinking about it? Have you been mulling it over in your head? Been trying to to think of like yeah definitely like trying to break it down but like we talked about this is gonna require a few rewatches and the thing about it is like I'm I would I'm interested in rewatching it sometimes you see a movie right and even if you don't understand it or you don't I enjoyed it enough to rewatch it and right. and look at it right. with a with a more analytical eye so. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think overall I liked it. Give me a little, give me a little, any like a summary of, of kind of where you're at and kind of where you're sitting on it. Um, I agree with you. I am. I mean, we've watched what twenty something movies uh, for this podcast. A lot of them, honestly, I, I don't, I haven't given another thought to, and I don't like. I had to go back. And even remember what the name and look it up what the name of Heart Eight Heart Eight was, you know, like so there there are some movies, uh, and this is like this, you know, in regular life you watch movies, some have an impact, some don't. This one is so strange because it had an impact on me. I haven't really been able to stop thinking about it since I watched it, but I can't point to any one thing and tell you this is why I liked it. 
because I don't understand why I liked it. I do know I didn't just like it. I actually loved this movie. I, I was intrigued. I couldn't take my eyes off it. I wanted to know what was going on. And I don't quite understand. I saw all the pieces. I see them all and I can look at them and analyze them, but I don't know why it, when put together, it created this piece of art. I don't know how he did it. And I don't know why it's affected me. I enjoyed it. I, I, I honestly can't wait to watch it again. Um, Again, if you haven't watched it, definitely just stop everything and go watch it because it's bizarre. It's not for everyone, though. That's the thing. No. I think that if if you want, if you're a type of person who really wants to know how the magician does his trick, I think it's going to drive you crazy. I think, uh, it, it, you know, it is sad. It's a tragedy. And the ending might leave a, a lot to be desired for some people. Maybe unsatisfying, I should say. So uh, it's not for everybody. But I definitely think it's a movie everyone should watch because it will have an effect on you. And I, I am very interested to kind of know what other people think of this thing. Yeah, because I also don't think it's, you know, we t- it, sometimes you'll get movies that are weird just for the sake of being weird. Like yes. They, they're trying yes. to be weird for their own, for, with, in, with really strong intention just to be different. And this, to me, doesn't have that. It doesn't have that weird-to-be-weird vibe. So uh, I'm 100% with you on that. Um, And I would say, yeah, drop it and go go check it out. Give me uh, a little bit of a a rating on on the film overall. I'm going 8.4. And you know I like the gory stuff, so I'm going 8.4 bleeding eyes. It's coming in with an 8. That's pretty high. It's very high for me. That's pretty high. Uh, in fact, the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking about what I was going to rate it. And when I was done, I was tempted to go lower, but I was like, no, I actually, I, I was tempted to go lower just because I'm usually a low grader and I was going to go somewhere in the sevens. But then the more I thought about it, the more I, I realized I actually did like it that much. Like I really, really love this movie. Yeah. I, and I'm going to go back and like I said, I immediately turn on the lobster and I'm, I'm dying to get back to it. I'm going to go back and see his, his old films, too, because I'm interested to see how he got to this point. Yeah, I don't see a lot of that from you where you're using the word love in a movie. I, I nev- Very rarely do I do that. This and, and this Texas is, Chainsaw, that's about it. This is, uh, this is a rare occurrence for Alan. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. Usually I'm the film apologist. <laughs> is this going to be the second week in a row where I rate it higher than you? It could be. Let me give you some trivia, and then we'll get into it. Uh, I want to run through a couple pieces of trivia, and then if you have something that I didn't that I didn't capture, go ahead and and chime in. Um, a couple details on the film: uh, this is a this is a UK Ireland uh, co-production, so uh, filming locations here in the US though. And um, there's a a couple pieces of trivia, like we mentioned before. It's kind of based on uh, some Greek mythology. Interesting piece of trivia. We were talking about this before, and what I'm reading here is that the heart surgery scenes in the film are real. Interesting. So they were filmed during an operation on a real patient who was undergoing quadruple bypass surgery, which Colin Farrell attended. So uh, wow. that, that made me a little queasy, actually, because it sat – you know why? Because it sat for so long. It wasn't just a five-second shot of right. it. It was like a minute, and it just made me well, queasy. It was, it, 
it was interesting how they did it because it the movie opens with just a black screen and just the music playing and that goes on for a long time and then it hard cuts to open heart surgery and a close up and it holds on it and kind of barely pulls back yeah uh very slowly and it holds on it for a long time it's a very bold interesting opening to a movie that really I don't know. We don't see any more gore throughout the movie, so it's just interesting. It was, an, it was a weird choice. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of gore. To, I mean, you could consider this a, a tragedy drama. I mean, there's a bit of horror in it, not in a traditional ascent of, of slasher-type horror, but there, there's some psychological horror to it. Um, For sure. The film, or uh, Colin Farrell said he felt nauseous after reading the script for the film. <laughs> uh, I can see why. The film was... Um, in competition for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival in 2017. Um, they, uh, Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman both uh, won awards in the official competition uh, for the film, won the Screenplay Award. So it got some, some recognition from one of the biggest festivals in the world. Bob, who, Bob by the way, is, is Stephen's son, Colin Farrell's son, played by Sonny uh, Suljic. He is also in a movie that we did our very first podcast on called Mid-90s, which is a great film. Um, and he's, There was a very uh, Danny Torrance vibe to him from The Shining. He did. I mean, there were, I'm telling you, there were a lot of Kubrick-type vibes to how this was put together. Uh, but he's the only American in the film. Everybody, because uh, like, you have Colin Farrell oh, from, from Ireland and then Nicole's from... And I, I'm Australia. glad that they let Colin Farrell just do his regular accent. Yeah. Yeah, because it's I, everybody else had, even Nicole Kidman played with an American accent. Right, right. I mean, she usually has, she can have her Australian one. I don't, I feel like I don't hear her with her Australian accent very often. It feels, I, for, do I? Very rarely. It's almost only in interviews or on yeah. Saturday Night Live or something. I feel like all the characters she plays, though, they always feel very American in, in, yeah, in, the, in the accent. It says, at the one minute 26 mark, pairs of windows resembling eyes follow the two parents from their bedroom through the house to the basement. This could symbolize that the entity making the children sick is observing the actions of the parents. That's like the Amityville house. I know. So now it's the house. This is, that's, that's too much for me. Yeah, that's going a little too far. Who's making this? Uh, who's making this bullshit? And I, I know you're looking at the same thing, but it, in the in the last scene, this might kind of explain what's going on with Martin, and kind of explain the last scene uh, where the family is shown walking into a wash of bright light away from Martin, who sits in darkness. This may symbolize that Martin has made a pact with dark forces and will remain affected by them forever. Yeah. So yeah. There's there's something devil. there. Those are things that uh, I'll definitely explore on the rewatch. There's a, definitely more depth that we haven't covered. This could actually be one of the podcasts that warrants a follow-up. I agree. <laughs> you know, so here's, a, here's an interesting thing, though. The killing of a sacred deer. So here is our Rotten Tomatoes score, Alan. We've got a 79% from the critics. It's not exceptionally high. It's not bad. It's good. Yeah, um, it's about, it might be about what I expect. 65 from the audience. That does not surprise me, actually. Like I said, I don't think this, this movie's for everybody. No, it's not. And uh, our, our IMDb score is a 
So out of 105,000 reviews or, or ratings, they're at a 7.1. That's probably pretty pretty accurate. Um, yeah. And you came in at uh, 8. 8.4. 4. Wow. I think that's one of the highest scores you've ever given. I think it is. Yeah, it's pretty close. So what's funny about this is like we mentioned, like this was just a, a quick nonchalant, hey, I'm in bed. I'm going to watch Netflix. Let me pull. Oh, this looks interesting. Next thing mm-hmm. I know, I'm messaging you like, hey, can we do this on the next podcast? And then before you know it, tonight, Alan's like one of my favorite movies ever. It really is. <laughs> it, this is this is one of the, my favorite movies that I've seen in a long time. No doubt. Um, well, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad. So it's, it's categorized drama, horror, mystery. Um, and it is on Netflix, by the way. So yeah. you don't have to buy it. You don't have to rent it. It's on Netflix. So is The Lobster. Yep. Both are on on Netflix. Yeah, I think Yorgos Lanthimos has an interesting style. I think he's got he's intriguing to me as a filmmaker. Uh, the things that he does. I had seen The Lobster before I had seen this. I didn't know that he had done both until after I even watched this because I just wasn't paying attention to the director. Um, and I liked The Lobster and I liked this movie too. Um, enough that I was I so I started it late, right? Like I did it was, it was late at night and I had put on netflix hit it on and you start to get tired you know it's like midnight Mm -hmm. you start to get tired and usually i'll just let the movie go and i'll fall asleep to it but this one i couldn't what i had to do was like i was like i don't want to miss anything so i'm going to throw on a shitty movie or whatever right and so i can stop this one and pick it back up good choice so um not that i couldn't have gone back but you know what i mean you're like i want to stop it exactly where i know i'm going to be so i can pick it back up I liked it a lot, too. I thought it was a really interesting, uh, very, you know, we talk about, um, you know, indie films and art house films. Like, this to me is an art house film. It's not a, it's, it, it's, it's got that artistic vibe. This is built by an auteur. This is built by somebody who has a clear vision. Whether we can interpret exactly what that vision is or isn't is is up to us, I guess, but that's what he leaves it up to. He leaves it us up to, to us to figure out what's even happening and constantly ask those mystery box questions. So I, I liked it for that. And I think he's a very intriguing filmmaker. And like you, I would be interested to see his other work that I haven't seen up to this point. Well, and that's um, what I like about a 24 is it, it feels like they, they are all in on filmmakers like that. And that's why, I mean, at some point it'd be fun to do like a series or something of a 24 films because each one is different, but they're all, I mean, all the ones I've seen, again, I haven't seen them all. They're all really good in really different ways. And they're all very unique. No, I, I agree. And uh, that's funny because that's what we kind of said at the beginning of the podcast and I'll, I'll kind of uh, say it again, which is when I saw A24, there was a bit of excitement because I thought this will be something that I'll enjoy. Yep. So I'm going to come in with, I'm going to go a 7.6. Man. This is a tough one. This is is the thing I can't even think of of how to attach it. So I'm going to stay at 7.6 deer. <laughs> the, the worst, the worst one ever. But uh, good, good film. Uh, definitely uh, rewatchable. I definitely suggest watching it for those that that haven't seen it. Uh, like Alan mentioned throughout the podcast, 
you've made it to the end now, but if you, uh, you know, if you haven't, definitely go watch it right after you listen to this. So, Alan, thanks for uh, going through this one with me. That was fun. I, I, I thanks for picking this one. I you, loved it. I'm, I'm glad that uh, that we found one that you love, other than Texas Chainsaw. Not that yeah, that's right? a great one, but this, <laughs> but we'll take it. So this is uh, the killing of a sacred deer. Uh, this is the Tame Aperture podcast. You can check us out at tameaperture.com for our portfolio of episodes, previous episodes, and also reach out uh, on social and let us know maybe uh, episodes in the future to review. This is the Tame Aperture podcast signing out. The Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.